1: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Mark Goulet, and I'm a professor of mathematics and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, your host for this program. Today, I'll be interviewing Ronald Meister, professor in probability theory at the Free University Amsterdam, about his new book, Probability and Forensic Evidence, co-authored with Klaus Slautten statistician at the Netherlands Forensic Institute, and a special appointment professor at the Free University Amsterdam. Dr. Meister is also co-author of the book's Continuum Percolation, A Natural Introduction to Probability Theory, and Random Networks for Communication. Ronald, welcome to the program. Thank you. So first I'll say a little bit about the book. The book. that you've written addresses the role of statistics and probability in the evaluation of forensic evidence, including both theoretical issues and applications in legal contexts. It discusses what evidence is and how it can be quantified, how it should be understood, and how it is applied, and sometimes misapplied. I look forward to our discussion today. so maybe to begin, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this in this field of forensic science and the intersection with probability.
0: Yes, I can. Uh, I can give that a try. Um, originally, um, my, my PhD in mathematics in probability theory is long ago. In, in I did my PhD in 1990. Uh, that was on on spatial probability. Collation theory, so that's very far away from forensic probability, and in that field, I've been—I mean, I've been working for for quite some time. Um, but you know uh, how do things go. Um, at some point, and I vaguely remember um, when this was. I mean, I, I I got interested in in a in a court case in the Netherlands um, where a statistician had written a report. And somebody had asked me, Ronald, can you have a look at that report? Because I have the impression that it is not so good, that there are problems with that. Um, so that's what I did. So I looked at the report and there were problems and I I spread the word uh, about these problems. I got involved in the actual court case. I was actually <laughs> a witness, an expert witness in that case. Um and that was sort of the start of my forensic career. <laughs> um, and in the beginning, you know, I, I, it, I mean, I, I, mainly did my, 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 old probability things, you know, but over the course of time, I got more and more interested in, in, in this, in this, in this branch, um, which I felt uh, suited me quite well. Um, for one thing, it was applied. Uh, so I like doing mathematics that means something. Um, and that's very important to me. It has a very strong philosophical component. It's not only doing mathematics. It is also asking yourself the question, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And how can we interpret the results? So over the years, um, yeah, this became my main research subject, um, and this, eventually um, led to cooperation with a number of people, in particular Klaus Sloten. And at some point we decided that that the literature needed a a, a sort of a standard work in this field. And so I hope we wrote that.
1: (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yeah, Uh, you tell me a little bit about uh, the the writing of the book uh, was a bit of an interesting process itself, uh, and the collaboration between you and your co-author.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if you if you co-author a book of this of this size, you know, it is like four hundred and fifty pages. There's a lot of material in it. It took us four to five years to uh, to to write it. I mean that is in in many ways a very interesting experience, of course, <laughs> not only mathematically. Because you know when you set out to write a book like that, of course you have an idea. Eh? You, you you wrote a proposal for the publisher, and um, so so that means you you have thought about what you want to write. But you know the book also sort of writes itself. Um, when you start writing, you you bump into things that you you know you thought you understood or you thought you had thought about before but you know there are problems there and so you start to think about that um so so the book all is not it's not only writing it's also sort of doing research at the same time um so 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 from the mathematical point of view this is already extremely interesting Uh, but also you know um i mean such a close collaboration um uh, of course, is, is also very interesting for, from, from the more, more human point of view. I mean, to, uh, so it's, this is a nice anecdote, perhaps. I mean, um, so, so I, I own a very small little uh, second house in the east of the country, in the Netherlands. And we, we went there uh, uh, very often for two days to work together, undisturbed. And we, I think we did this like a 30, 30 times or so. <laughs> so we took the train. <laughs> we took the train to the east of the country, and we started to work there for two for two days, not doing anything else. And then after two days, we were tired and went back home. And you know, uh, so so we 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 were very good colleagues, but you know, in the process, we of course became very good friends also, uh, obviously. <laughs> yes, Yeah. So in in many ways, it has been an enriching and very special uh, experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, it sounds it. Thank you. Um, Can you speak uh, to why uh, the subject, uh, the use of probability in analyzing forensic evidence, is uh, perceived by many as being so difficult? Yeah,
0: well, yeah, well, probability and statistics, of course, without going into forensic is, is, of course, in itself already perceived as quite difficult by by many. I mean, we, we do not have most of us do not have a very good intuition for probabilistic thinking. Um, and I have to say even after all these years I mean I do not always trust my own intuition right I mean so I, I'm not you know I, it, it's it's also possible for me to make mistakes there easily um, but in in, in in a forensic and, and more legal context um, one of the more difficult things is is to ask yourself the question what do I mean when I when I say that the probability of this or that event is so and so large? Um, so so maybe I can give you an example to, 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 to illustrate what, what, what makes it difficult to, to understand what you're doing. Um, typically, when we think of probability, we, we think of these as predicting things, right? So if I throw a die, I, you predict how often it will land eh, with, 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 with a certain number of, of eyes up. Uh, in forensic context, I mean, the, the event of interest has already taken place. You know, you know. So, so, so there is a DNA profile found at the scene of a crime. So, what does it mean to say, or to even think about the probability that a, a potential, a potential a person is is the potential donor of the DNA profile? I mean, I mean, for for I mean, I've noticed that for 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 many people, this is very difficult to actually to to sort of you know to to sort of understand that talking about probability even makes sense in in the in that situation uh, um, so so so, uh, so that's one reason why it, why it is difficult um, the, 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 the the second reason why it is difficult is is just the fact you know ordinary logic I mean deterministic logic maybe I should say it of course there are many types of logic but you know classical logic is already quite difficult Um, um but when you when you talk about probability, when when there is uncertainty in the air, then things that you think are true are typically no longer true. right so so if 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 you say that you know mean if a implies b uh, right, then if you observe a, then you know that B must be there. But if there is uncertainty, <laughs> uh, things that that seem true are in fact not true. And I've seen many, many people in the forensic and legal community make mistakes uh, in, in that kind of reasoning. Um, and well this I mean I mean I I've been teaching also this 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 field uh, to, to judges uh, and I know how difficult they find it. Uh, which makes of course the, the, the need for 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 a thorough introduction of course on, on, only bigger. So I hope that that answers some of your of, of uh, some of your some of your questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it, the, so um, it may be a little bit more on then your feeling about how improved understanding, perhaps, of probability and statistics can can help us or help uh, uh, adjudicators in uh, interpreting and analyzing forensic evidence.
0: Yeah, so,
1: so maybe that I can maybe illustrate with a very concrete
0: and very famous example. So may, maybe that helps to make my point. Um, th- there's been a very famous court case in the United Kingdom in the in the late 90s. And this was the case of Sally Clark. And so what happened in that case uh, she was the mother of a three month old boy and at some point she was alone with her her baby at home and, the, and and the baby died and this was attributed this was actually categorized as a crib death or right, so that sometimes happens with, with 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 children not very often but sometimes it does so so of course this was a tragedy but it was a tragedy and no more than that. But maybe you can guess two years later, or maybe even less, I mean, yeah, something like one and a half or two years later, the exact same thing happened with her second child. Um, so again, she, she got a second boy, and again, she was alone with the boy at home, and also the second boy died. Um, and there were no indications whatsoever what could have been the cause. I mean, the, the, the cause of death has never really been established. So, uh, so then... At that moment, uh, there was somebody. Uh, there was there was there was a medical doctor in, in in England, who computed the probability that this could happen to 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 an arbitrary woman, and he came up with a number. Uh, I think if I recall, I think this was one in seventy two million. So um, so this is what happened. Um, they claimed that the probability for this event to happen was one in seventy two million if. Sally Clark was innocent, if, and the judge <laughs> concluded that this probability was too small to believe that hypothesis that she was innocent, and she was convicted, um, and she was convicted twice. Um, uh, well, that was um, remarkable. Um, so, so one of my colleagues. Um, philip uh, uh, philip david in 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 england um he argued that this small probability didn't mean anything at all um so so the the point is uh, so yes something very unexpected happened something that had a very small probability but that's completely irrelevant right um (laughs) What was not taken into account was the the, the possibility or the the fact that it is very, very unlikely from the outset that a mother will kill her two babies. So if you do a proper analysis of this, then you will see that there is no statistical or probabilistic reason to convict Sally Clark at all. And the judges and everybody else was simply misguided, misleaded by this very small number, which they could not properly interpret. And so this was a very sad story. Um, so she was released after a while, uh, Sally Clark, and, but, but she died shortly after and she never really f- fully recovered from the situation. So this is a very sad story, um, but, it, but it, it illustrates the need for proper probabilistic reasoning in legal and forensic situations. And you know, this this case, we we analyze actually this case in in some depth in in the book um, together with other cases. Um, um and, and so, so 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 we hope that that of course that, that our book contributes yeah, to 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 a, a better understanding of how you should go about in cases like this.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very important contribution. If in fact it does do that, Ronald, that's very good. Uh, thank you for that example. Um, at some point early in the book, uh, for those acquainted with uh, probability uh, in general, uh, there may be some understanding of kind of in their own mind or even in some others of the literature of various ways to interpret what a probability is so to speak, uh, kind of a definition or something you kind of try to wrap your head around. So these approaches, like a frequentist approach or or other kinds of things, you speak in the book about uh, a specific interpretation, which uh, is uh, known as an epistemic interpretation of probability. Uh, can you maybe say a little bit uh, about? You know, to explain that, what is an epistemic interpretation of probability, and and why perhaps to follow on that, it's important that one adopt that particular interpretation when considering forensic evidence. Yeah,
0: that, that's that's a good and a very complicated question at the same time. Um, so, so epistemic um, um, has to do with with knowledge. So, so it, it's a, it's a philosophical question, of course. I mean, I mean, we're not talking about the mathematics of probability here. Uh, we we, we uh, we're not talking about the Kolmogorov axioms and discuss whether or they are what we want them to be or so. Um, so, so, so epistemic uh, probability refers to the fact that we that we do not, we are not interested. In questions, what 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 things are? Uh, how th- I mean, we are interested in what we what we know. Uh, so, in 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 the, in the more philosophical terms, we're we're not interested in in in, in uh, ontology. Uh, we we're not interested in the question whether you know uh, is 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 probability a, a physical quantity? Is that a physical you know property of certain things? I mean, that's not interesting for us. Um, we are not interested in the question um, that sounds maybe strange but we are not interested in the question um, does this DNA come from that person we're interested in the, in the question whether we can know that that's the case uh, that's what is that's what is forensic and what is legal science all about can we know that that's true um, so so um, so that means that this asks uh, for this specific, uh, way of thinking about probability which in itself um, is is a potential problem because you have to somehow convince yourself and, and of course our readers uh, that that if we do if we adopt such a uh, interpretation of probability that actually the, the 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 axioms that I just mentioned, the axioms of probability actually sort of still make sense because we we make computations <laughs> with that right and most people, would defend the axioms of probability by referring to probability as being frequentistic in the sense, you know, a probability of a certain event is the fraction of times that that event occurs in the long range of of experience. And, you know, with this frequentistic interpretation, the axioms of probability make a lot of sense and they can be very easily, I mean, argued for. I mean, when you adopt a different interpretation, like we do here, because frequentism doesn't mean anything in our branch. You know, there's only one, <laughs> there's only one court case for this specific case, and I mean, it doesn't even make sense to talk about the repetition in, in our context. So, so, so that means that we have to worry already in the beginning of the book <laughs> about the, the the validness of the the the, the, the can, can we use the axioms? Does that make sense? And of course, we're not the first one to discuss this, obviously. Uh, but but we had to address it in, in the book and so we we explain why this is a reasonable thing to do and why the axioms would still hold and then once you have convinced you of that then you can you know then you can just make computations with with with, with this prob- this this notion of probability without all the time thinking <laughs> what it means and then then at some point it just becomes mathematics again um, but this, philosophic, this philosophical step is really important and really necessary to address early. So, so our, our first chapter is really on philosophy of probability and forensic science. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, you um, spend a little time on uh, early on. Um, explaining perhaps how probability can uh, be utilized uh, to um, improve our understanding of a situation uh, uh, given some uh, evidence, uh, given some knowledge that comes to light. And uh, you speak a bit in that context of some important concepts, uh, odds ratios and likelihood ratios. And, and I know this is, uh, you know, we don't have a chalkboard with us here, uh, Ronald. So I'm not looking necessarily for you to to speak specifically the equations, but I think the concepts are important enough for us to to uh, address, and for you maybe to sp- say a few things about about those two concepts.
0: Yeah, well, that that is certainly possible. I mean, the the, the concept of a likelihood ratio is, I think, the most central concept of the book. Um, and w- so, why is that? Well. This has to do with 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 our philosophy of how to do statistics in this context. So 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 I, I just give you an example. Um, so 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 it's very natural in the in this context to have two competing uh, hypotheses, two competing scenarios. Uh, one, let's say, one by the um, um, by the prosecutor, and one by the defense. To make it to make it simple, right? So they both have their own story of what happened, Um, Of course, the prosecutor would say, uh, this person is the donor of this or that DNA profile, or he contributed to this mixture of DNA profiles, which is typically very often the case. And and, and the defense would say, no, somebody else unknown to us uh, contributed to that. Okay, now, so then there's a piece of evidence. So what, so the likelihood ratio does something very simple. It simply tells me, I mean, which of the two hypotheses explains this evidence, this piece of information, the best. So you can say, what would be the probability of this evidence if the first hypothesis would be true? And I compare that to the probability of that evidence if I would assume that the second hypothesis is true. Now, if the first probability is much higher than the second, that means that the evidence, you know, points towards the first hypothesis eh, rather than to the second, and it is exactly the ratio, eh, the, the the ratio of these two probabilities, that we call the likelihood ratio, and which, for the reason that I just tried to explain, we sort of interpret or, or we we claim, is the actual quantifi- quantification of This piece of evidence in relation with the two given hypotheses. So the Likelihood Ratio tells me simply which of two competing hypotheses explains the data best. That's what it does. And um, well, this this is a uh, this is. a, 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 a sort of classical way of doing statistics. Right? This, is, this is associated to what is called the Bayesian school of doing statistics, <laughs> and and that is that sort of stands against the more classical uh, Fisherian Fisherian uh, way of doing statistics. Um, but in in the context of forensics and and legal issues, the Bayesian approach approach comes very very natural for the reason that I just said because you know there are two scenarios, there are two hypotheses at least. And it is very natural to simply see which of these two hypotheses explains the data best. And so that gives me the the likelihood ratio. Um, But of course, the story is not nearly as (laughs) as nice as I suggested so far, because the the Bayesian approach to statistics also asks us to to make, to, to start somewhere. You cannot do statistics from nothing. So there must be some prior, some, some prior belief, some prior probability in each of the competing hypotheses. And this, of course, is something that very often mathematics has very little to do with. This is just, you know, this is just something that the judge or the jury or who else is, in, 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 um, in the, is involved in the case actually has to figure out for him or herself. Um, so, so. Um, so sometimes this is taken as, as, as critic for, for, for the Bayesian point of view statistics because they say, well, you know, if I, if I let me just compute the p-value, you know, then I simply have a number and that's it. And now you tell me <laughs> that you have to combine this, this, this likelihood ratio with something that, that is called prior. And, oh boy, this is difficult. Uh, isn't this a downside of this method? And, and then I would say, well, it's not the downside of the method. It is the downside of, of what life is. This, this is reality. Uh, this is a much more realistic way of doing statistics than, 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 than the, the, the old school, the classical approach via p-values. And yeah, there, there, is a, there is a subjective element in that, but that cannot be avoided. Yeah, so, so, so in explaining the mathematics of all this, we also try to convey the message that, you know, you can not come to a objective conclusion. That is simply impossible. Um, and you may or may not like that, <laughs> but, but that's what it is. Um, and you have to come to terms with that. Um, and that's a complicated message, of course. I realize that. I mean, this is not this is not an easy story. I mean, let, let me let me also say that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I do not claim that the book is an easy read, right? Um, um, I mean, I, I think you read part of it, uh, Mark. So you, you so you <laughs> you 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 might you might want to want to agree with that. It's 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 not something that you read uh, in, in, in in very short time. You, it 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 requires an effort from the reader. But hopefully, well, okay, hopefully you get something. Out of making that effort,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I I believe so. I think it's a very good book, an important contribution, Ronald. Uh, the um, you just mentioned a bit. Maybe we can circle a bit back on that. Is you mentioned this notion of p-value? So, to the listener um, who's f- a little familiar with statistics, of course, they will be familiar with this idea of a p-value, um, but maybe you can say a little bit, uh, your understanding of the idea of a p-value and um, why you in particular are a little cautious or ex- or uh, uh, ask people to be cautious in the use of p-values when analyzing evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- so th- that's... Uh, that's in fact very important
0: to to discuss this because uh, we we have noticed that many problems actually start with with uh, um, with with interpreting p-values incorrectly. So so what is a p-value? A p-value essentially says you know how unlikely or how extreme maybe extreme is the better word how ex- how extreme the evidence that you found is. With respect to the evidence that you could have found, <laughs> right? So, so you know, if 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 you if if I draw a number between zero and one, right? Of course, every number is equally likely to 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 be to be drawn. Right? So there, there there's nothing there, but still, you might find a little you might find it <laughs> a little unsettling if you if you if you choose .999999999, right? Because it is so close to the boundary. It is so extreme, right? Um, so, um, so a p-value tells me, um, okay, uh, if I would do this experiment many times, suppose I can do that, right? Um, then I would see a certain patterns of possible outcomes with certain probabilities, and a p-value tells me places the actual the actual outcome that we found it places that into the 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 the, the range of possible outcomes that you could have. Obtained, and that that makes a lot of sense intuitively, right? Because you know, uh, if you believe a certain hypothesis is true, but the outcome that you obtained is very extreme for that particular hypothesis, right? Then you start to wonder, wait a minute, is my hypothesis correct? And 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 to be sure, this is exactly what happened in the Sally Clark case, right? Because you know. The, the hypothesis of being innocent did not match very well with two uh, two dead babies. And the, the probability of that happening was so small, you didn't believe the original assumption anymore. So, so it's a very natural thing to do, um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the the problem with p-values is that you that you need to know what kind of what kind of answers you could have obtained. So, so you need to know a lot about the actual experiment, and very often you don't know that. Um, but, but even more importantly, um, so, so I just talked about likelihood ratios, right? So let me connect the two. So suppose you find a likelihood ratio of, of 1,000 right? for two hypotheses. That simply means that the evidence is 1,000 times more likely under the first than under the second hypothesis. So that's strong evidence for the first hypothesis in relation to the second one. Um, So in a way, this is evidence in in, in favor of the first hypothesis. But it can very easily happen that the the corresponding p-value that you find is extremely small. The corresponding p-value for that first hypothesis. Um, So... So there is no relation, there is no mathematical relation between the strength of the evidence measured in likelihood ratios on the one hand and the corresponding p-value for, let's say, the first hypothesis on the second hand. Um, And that's very worrying because that means that you you can compute p-values, but you know now that they have no mathematical relation at all to the actual strength of the evidence. And yeah, well, there are a number of reasons why this is so. Um, and, and in the book we we explain some of that. Um, hopefully in, in, in understandable in understandable terms. Um, but let me add that even I mean today as we as I mean as we speak, I mean p-values are still used in the forensic context. So sometimes you see that people report the, the the likelihood ratio, which is what they should do. But they also then add the corresponding p-value, which, well, in, in a way, is, is, is essentially meaningless. <laughs> now, if, you, if you have the likelihood ratio, then that's all you need, and that's all you can get, <laughs> in, in a way. And you can also prove mathematically that you know once you have the likelihood ratio, that's all that you can actually infer from the data that you have. All other information is superfluous. You don't need that, and so so adding a p-value will will only obscure the picture. Unfortunately, so 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 we make a strong case uh, uh, for not using p-values uh, as as quantification of evidence. Sometimes it can be useful. In the sense that you can discover via p-values that the two hypotheses that you looked at are both incorrect, <laughs> that can of course happen, <laughs> and 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 that in in that process p-values can play a role, um, but only there. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, you you, you see that it it takes a little trouble to explain this, and to really make this case requires a lot of care, and uh, well, it requires a full chapter to 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 really. Uh, to, to get down to the details and to, to make a convincing case, which, which 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 I hope that we that we made.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you spend a couple chapters uh, around it here around the uh, analysis of uh, DNA evidence, and um, you say a little bit about about that. Um, why is probability first such an important, uh, tool, uh, helping us work with DNA evidence? I mean, it seems that at some point, uh, you simply have a, a DNA profile and you have an um, individual that has that match or they don't. And so, uh, you know, that, that seems to give some certainty so maybe to discuss that a bit yeah yeah that, that
0: that's that's an excellent question of course i mean i mean when you, when you look at one of these uh, you know these series like crime scene investigation or so you know at the moment there's a match you know then then okay we're done right that's it and that's uh, that's not how, how real life actually is i mean and there's several reasons for that i mean i mean to, to be sure uh, if you have a, a full profile which these days consists of like 28 uh, uh, places on your on your genetic material um, um, then this is this should be essentially unique right so so if you have a person with then you can be pretty sure. Um, that that he's the donor, he or she's the donor. Uh, even that situation does not always lead to conviction because very often the, 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 the defense will say, okay, it's it's his DNA, but I have no idea how it got there. <laughs> and then you have to prove that. But that's, of course, a, different, a slightly different issue. Um, so, so, so let me give you two examples of, of situations where DNA and probability, I mean, are, are very very interwoven with each other. So the the first is what happens with DNA mixtures. Uh, That's a very interesting uh, and very important uh, uh, subject because it's very often the case that, for instance, blood of a victim is mixed with the blood uh, of the criminal. And when you make a DNA profile, you you can see the alleles, which means you can see the codes at certain places, but you do not know, you cannot see which code (laughs) came from which so you see it all together you see like four numbers uh, so every at every place we have two numbers one from your mother and one from your father uh, so if it is a full if you see everything at the spot you see four numbers but you you don't know which of the two belong to each other <laughs> right uh, so so then you have to make a probabilistic assessment uh, of of the identity of the different donors, and and there are various techniques to do that. So there's a lot of uncertainty there that can be addressed in a probabilistic way. Um, So that's one way. Um, Another very important example, which abstractly is sort of the same, but I mean, from an application point of view, certainly not, is kinship analysis. So, so suppose there is there has been some disaster, like you know, like the MH seventeen disaster, the plane crash here in, in in Europe a couple of years ago, with many victims. Uh, then you have to identify these victims, or sometimes they're missing persons, just in the in uh, just you know individual mi- missing persons. And suppose you have DNA, you have DNA material of certain family members, let's say of a brother and and a parent, let's say. So I know the DNA of the brother and the parent, and here is then I find the body somewhere, or I find bones or some other uh, tissue, and then I want to know, Is does this belong to the missing person? And then it is a probabilistic statement, uh, right? Because then, then you can make a probabilistic assessment of what you expect the DNA profile of the unknown person to be, given the DNA of the relatives, and then you can see if that matches probabilistically, in some sense, uh, to, to the missing person. Um, so that the this kinship analysis is very interesting from a mathematical point of view, um, and it is it is one of the few areas in forensic probability where you can make actual computations um, because we know a lot about the frequency of DNA profiles in in in, in the populations. Um, so so these are two examples where 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 uh, probability uh, is very important in the assessment, and. And as a third example, uh, is what you should do. Um, when, when you, when you find a suspect via a database search of DNA profiles, which is an interesting subject in its own right. And then mathematics and probability becomes, I mean, I mean, unbelievably interesting. <laughs> I <would Yes>.
1: say. <laughs> yeah. 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 You spend a good amount of time on that chapters, uh, seven and eight in the book, uh, analyzing those, those problems. Um, yeah. Uh, in, uh, chapter 11 of the book, so getting sort of towards the latter, uh, the latter third, uh, you discuss what is known in forensic science as the database controversy. And, uh, maybe for the listener, uh, you can introduce us to that concept, and maybe a bit more difficult in a short interview, but some summary of your analysis of the controversy.
0: Yeah, yeah this, this, has, this has been a recurring theme in my forensic activities. Um, um, the situation is extremely simple. And it will be maybe surprising to the listener that this simply simple-looking problem has caused so much uproar in the literature. I mean, even today. So here's here's this here's the problem. So 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 let me compare two situations, right? Um, so suppose I find a DNA profile at the scene of a crime, right? mm-hmm. and now and now and now there's there's two there's two uh, scenarios. In the first scenario, let's say. I pick a random person from the street, right? And this person turns out to have the DNA the DNA profile that I found at the scene of the crime, right? So this makes this person of course in some sense suspect etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is that the profile that we found the DNA profile that we found at the scene of the crime is compared to the available DNA profiles in some large DNA database. And suppose there is a unique match with a person, Adam Smith or so, or John Smith, we typically call him. And as a result of that match, John Smith becomes a suspect in the case. So these are two scenarios. And now the question is, (laughs) in which case do you think you have stronger evidence in the first case, which we call the cold case, where you simply pick someone from the street who turns out to have that profile, or in the second case, where the person actually was found through a database search, and intuitively, intuitively, um, you can make you can make a, a case for either either direction. Right? So the controversy, the contr- sort of circled around the question which of the two scenarios gives the strongest evidence against the, subs- the suspect so one, one group would say well clearly this must be in the in the um, in the um, in the database uh, situation because you know you have also excluded a number of people because they do not match so that means that means that we have a stronger uh, suspicion against the person who did match right um, and, and 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 but there is also there is also another school that claims that if you compare, if the fact that you've compared to so many people, um, uh, so how do I how do we explain that in in, in in easy words? So the fact that that I've explained it, that I've that I have um, uh, tested so many different hypotheses means, of course, that that this suffers from what is called multiple testing, right? So of course, if you if you if you test enough people you know at some point you will get some evidence for, uh, by, by, by you know that that's, that's to be expected uh, so the fact that you did so many comparisons weakens the evidence um, and both can be sort of you know I mean I mean I I, I what, what I sometimes do in my class is that I that I first, before the break, I, I explain to students that it is stronger evidence, and after the break, I explain it is weaker evidence, and then they then I leave them totally <laughs> bewildered after the I mean, both, I mean, it's not so difficult to give a very convincing case for either direction. So in the literature, I mean, papers appeared, started to appear, claiming either way. Um, so so, Klaus and I, we we, we, we we thought about this carefully, and we we sort of we, no, we we, we we sorted it out, and we explained what was really going on, and we explained that the whole you know the whole problem essentially rested on some misunderstanding, um, um, and and so we resolved this 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 controversy in in the book uh, for once and for all. Um, um, so so the, in a way in a way, the, the people that claim that the, the database search gives the strongest evidence are correct, but the reason that they are correct is not <laughs> what, <laughs> what was claimed to be the reason. <laughs> so, so, but, but even, you know, like two or three years ago, this was challenged by, by, by people who, who published something to the, to the, to the contrary again. And, you know, this, 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 this is a continuing interesting story.
1: That's very good. That sounds in and of itself an important contribution, Ronald, to the literature. Uh, that analysis is, is chapter 11 of the text. Um, I, I, ho- I hope so, yeah. yeah? <laughs> given, the, given the amount of time we spent on it,
0: I, I surely <laughs> hope so. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You and I share, of course, a similar mathematical background in the sense of probability and probability theory. and um, And so something that comes up in the book uh, towards the end and I think relates to a lot of what we've been discussing is that, um, you know, probability, of course, you know, we probably be biased, a beautiful discipline and, and uh, you know, it rests on a fairly uh, surprising uh, set of simple axioms, uh, really uh, uh, foundationally um, Arrived at uh, not so long ago, you know, relative in mathematics uh, history, right? Mid mid nineteen hundreds, Kolmogorov, uh, you know, axioms and understanding, and uh, but beautiful and uh, but um, it seems in this area of forensic science uh, and in evaluating evidence, um, we are often left with more uncertainty than we might prefer and with even some, uh, some, some things that are truly just, we should acknowledge uh, to be, we don't know. Sometimes the best thing to do is simply acknowledge something when you don't know it, you know? And so um, you discuss in the book, and I, I I know that there's more to discuss than what you write in the book on a notion of, 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 it's not probability it's a generalization of some kind uh, which you re- which was referred to as a belief function so maybe you can say something to the listener for what what is a belief function and why you find it important in this context
0: yeah well a, a belief function is is sort of a probability um, but it is a generalization of that um, and, and and it 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 allows it allows for certain types of uncertainty that that, that I think, and with me, many others, uh, type of uncertainty that you come across when you look into legal affairs. Um, so, because um, in, in, in legal affairs, so, so let, me, let me try to, to, to illustrate it a little bit. Um, um, of course, you cannot convict anybody without proper evidence, without proper belief of the judge or the jury, that the person that had uh, that the suspect is did in fact commit the crime um so this comes with evidence right so you need evidence now um in in, in ordinary probability theory um if 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 if, if you know the probability of, of a certain event then you also know the probability that it did not occur because you know one of them must occur so if the probability of a is one third then the probability of not a must be two thirds right? that that's how it is and that's part of the axioms and that makes perfect sense but in legal affairs it is quite possible not to have any evidence for the event that the suspect did it did commit the crime but not having evidence at all also for 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 the contrary right so so if you want to sometimes summarize your knowledge uh, summarize your knowledge and you want to express that in probabilistic terms, then you find out, I mean, I found out at some point (laughs) that I cannot express that within the axioms of ordinary probability. Right? So, so to give another example, um, which we call the Island problem, suppose a a, a crime is committed on an Island and there are 10 inhabitants and I know for sure that one of them did it. That's all I know. Then in, 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 in classical probability, then I have to sort of, you know, express my ignorance. Well, I, I actually, I cannot really express my ignorance because I have to, you know, to assign probability 1 over 10, I think, to each of the 10 people living on the island because that's the only fair thing that I can do in classical probability. But a belief function can do something very funny. <laughs> a belief function can assign belief 1 to the whole ensemble, of people so so telling me i know for sure that somebody on the island did it <laughs> but at the same time it can assign belief 0 to each of the individuals <laughs> uh, corresponding to the fact that i have no individual knowledge whatsoever right so 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 sometimes the knowledge that i actually have cannot be described by a probability distribution but it can be described by a belief function in the way I just tried to explain. And and, and when I figured out, when I, when, you know, I, I, I was actually, you know, this was one of the hurdles that I came across I mean, many years ago. And then there was some colleagues of mine who said, well, maybe what you're looking for, might, mm, this might exist. maybe I, I think it is called a belief function. And that opened a new world for me. Um, um, so I, 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 I studied them and I, I, I redesigned some of the theory I I um, I derived conditional belief function everything that is ne- needed to to, uh, to to work with that but there is a genuine applied reason <laughs> to use them it is not some mathematical you know, artifact or something that I like in mathematically it was something that I actually needed um, so so you know so and so this chapter of the book is is I think the most theoretical of all of all and the most mathematical of all chapters, and you know the application of belief function in the forensic world, it starts to grow. there are also philosophers now who actually claim and who defend that idea um, so that has been a a real real pleasure um and, and then you know to 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 do that to 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 yeah. think about that.
1: Yes. Yeah. Grounds for further, uh, further research and further investigation. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems to perhaps provide, uh, an interesting perspective on, uh, allowing one to, um, assign things you might suspect, uh, in terms of probabilities on certain ensembles of, of, Of uh, elements, so individuals, but not on individuals, or not on other ensembles, right? Right. Depending
0: on things that are presented to you, it it, it Um,
1: gives a lot of freedom.
0: I mean, I mean, there's there's a lot of different types of information that I can now I can now process, and I could not process that. I mean, with with classical probability, which was which was a tough thing to swallow. Of course, I mean, I mean uh, you can understand that, you know. I mean, I was raised as a classical probabilist, uh, probably like you, right? <laughs> and and then, so, so this was this 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 took some time to to mentally to mentally be able to do that. Um, but after a while, it, it, now it's 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 as natural to me as as classical probability is.
1: Yeah, you do a good job in chapter 13, Ronald. You do a very good job, I think, at laying out even some of the, but the mathematics behind it, and I think in articulating that this can still be done with care and, and lead to, of course, sound conclusions, sound, sound mathematics. Uh, one can still carry, carry a certain program through, uh, even without, as you've mentioned, or, or as you can speak here, without a so-called additivity uh, of, of property. Um, In the final chapter of the book, uh, I I believe very important, uh, you make uh, some uh, suggestions, some guidelines, you propose some guidelines that would assist forensic scientists and and adjudicators in interpreting forensic evidence. Uh, So perhaps uh, for the listener summarizing that, those guidelines.
0: Yeah. Well, well, I mean, of of course, I mean, I mean, uh, the subject is difficult. I mentioned that a couple of times before. So there, I mean, over the years, some so-called recommendation reports have appeared. Uh, there is there is the, the the PCAST report to the president of the United States. There is the there is there there is the European re, record, uh, report of a whole consortium of forensic institutes. There is an academic uh, report uh, that that was the offspring of a meeting in Cambridge, and and there are a few more. Um, so, um, so we thought it would be interesting to see how these recommendations actually align with our own conclusions. I mean, so you expect, of course, a recommendation report to to be correct, uh, that they tell you how to how to apply certain things, and how to do, and how to avoid mistakes, and what to do, and the do the do's and the don'ts, so to speak. Um, but to our surprise, um, so we we we. we we read very carefully six of these reports. Um, two of them were were very good in the sense. Of course, we had some comments because they were not perfect in all places. But we did. But these were these were very reasonable and um, very useful. Two of them were downwards. I mean, they, they were downright I mean wrong. <laughs> From I mean, on the statistical part, some some of these reports also. We discuss other branches of forensics that we do not discuss, but on the forensic parts they were downright, downright wrong. Uh, so that that, so that was that was and is very harmful. So so we we pointed out what goes wrong in these reports, uh, and and two of them were you know somewhere in the middle. Uh, so with, with some good and some 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 bad uh, some bad uh, advices. So 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 this this was something that well. We had not expected it to be this way. To be honest, um, it came as, as as a mild shock to us that that recommendation reports written by professionals could contain, uh, you know, I mean, very important mistakes. Um, so we explained uh, in in some detail. Of course, we did not discuss the reports in full detail because these reports by themselves are sometimes, you know, hundred or one hundred and fifty pages long. But to report some highlights um, and invite the reader, of course, also to 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 draw their own conclusions by by reading uh, these these recommendation reports. But this this last chapter, um, actually, this was not planned in the beginning, <clears throat> and to be honest, it was our publisher <laughs> who who convinced us that this that this, that this should be a very good service to the community to do this, and he was very very right so this was one of these these moments that a publisher can have a very important you know uh input on, on in a book in in, in in that is that is being written so so this was a very good suggestion um and uh, i really appreciate it and uh of course it's it's it, it took us a lot of hours to do that but it was worth it was worth it
1: so to, uh, to reiterate, uh, Cambridge University Press is the uh, publisher uh, of the text. Again, it's uh, Probability and Forensic Evidence. Um, uh, concluding, uh, to ask, uh, currently, what are you up to? What project or projects are you up to now?
0: Um, uh, several um so so my forensic uh activities also led to a more general interest in statistical methods so i'm also writing on uh, statistical methods in general um, um and more the philosophy behind that um and this goes as far as to really try to understand for instance how a how, how for instance the, the Something that you might not expect in this context, but when you go to to theoretical physics, to particle to particle physics, uh, whenever let's say the Higgs, the Higgs particle was discovered a couple of years ago, but not many people know that this was a statistical proof. Um, so. Um, Using p-values, that and I told you before that I do not like p-values. So this, this of course sparked my interest on in what the hell <laughs> was going on there. So I'm looking into that with theoretical physicists. So so that's a very interesting project that I can really. So um, don't worry, I, I, I think the Higgs particle is still there, but I think it, 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 there's a better way of of conveying that. So I'm look, so I'm for instance looking at that. Um, um, I'm also writing um, a, a somewhat more popular book now uh, on the use of mathematical models uh, when it comes to policy and politics, which, of course, has been very important over the last few years in, in the pandemic. So I'm, I'm working on that. Um, and there are always several uh, mathematical, uh, forensic mathematical problems that I that I work on. Um, so um, um, I, uh, <laughs> I have no problems <laughs> in finding very interesting projects to work on uh, and projects that I think are worth pursuing also, of course. Yeah.
1: Yes, that sounds. it sounds it. That's very good. Uh, uh, besides uh, the Cambridge University uh, publishing website itself, Cambridge University Press, uh, do you know another way uh, where the listener could find a copy of the book or more information about you and your work?
0: Uh, well, you can always look at my homepage. If you Google my name, you come to my homepage uh, quickly. So then you can find uh, my, my list of publications, uh, for instance. Um, and you can buy the book in 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 uh, in any uh, bookshop or online. It, it's it's generally available. Um, it it is hardcover, but there's also a softcover, so the paperback. So they're they're both available. Um, so so. It should be no problem to uh, to actually uh, to find a copy if if you if, if you're interested.
1: Well, Ronald, I want to thank you on behalf of the New Books Network and personally. It's been a delight to speak with you uh, today uh, about the book. I uh, wish you well. Uh, we'll talk again.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, bye.